Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Study. This is episode number 226. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkenu, our Father, our King. Lord, as we once again embark on another journey into your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us tonight and open the words up to us and explain them to us. Give us the will and desire to walk them out. We don't want to study just for study's sake but rather taking the Esber principle, we want to study your words in order to do them, to walk them out, to implement them, in order to teach others to do the very same thing. Study, do, teach, and keep that cycle perpetuating. So thank you for uh, preserving your words and giving us um, the opportunity to share our thoughts with one another across the miles using this medium of the internet. I pray that you'll bless everyone who watches the videos and listens to the audio podcasts and bless them where they're at and continue to prepare us and raise us up and strengthen us during these last days so that we can be ambassadors for your name and witnesses for your um, great salvation. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua, Omein. Thank you, everybody, for joining me during these live internet studies. This is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi joining you once again uh, via the uh, internet and via um, the podcasts. And we're in the session one, segment one of this hour and a half long study. It's broken up into two segments for the hour for the full show. The first segment is given over to the topic of eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. We're in topic number seven, as you can see on your screen in yellow there, excursus, the Islamic Antichrist per Joel Richardson. And so let's jump right back in. We left off last week. Uh, reading a passage from the book of Daniel. Let me scroll back up just a little bit. You see it's Daniel uh, 7.23 there. And from there, um, Mr. Richardson, we're reading from his book, The Islamic Antichrist, which is available. Um, use Follow the links in the description uh, in the video. Um, if you're watching the YouTube video, look in the description below, and I've left links not only for the book on Amazon, but you can also read the book online from his website free, as well as another resource. And there are other resources there in the, in the uh, link in the uh, description section that I can point you to and recommend you for this particular topic. But um, jumping back in where we left off, I backed up a paragraph so we can get a running start. He, he ju we just read through Daniel's quote. And now here's what uh, Mr. Richardson has to say. He says, speaking of Daniel's quote, essentially the angel explains that the fourth kingdom, which that's what it's in view right now, the fourth kingdom in Daniel's um visions of the four kingdoms, right? The four beasts or the four metals in, in Nebuchadnezzar's statue of Daniel chapter 2. So just kind of combine in your mind Daniel chapter 2 with Daniel chapter 7. So the fourth kingdom will be an empire that will cause great destruction to the whole earth. Initially, this kingdom will consist of ten kings, right? Remember the ten toes in the statue, even though it doesn't say the word ten when it talks about the toes, stage, there's nevertheless an obvious emphasis on the um, feet as they um, correspond to what Daniel sees as um, beasts with ten horns and then the um, 
ten horns are mentioned directly in, in the book of Revelation. So, uh, as we're seeing the details of the prophecy unfold, what we gain are more and more details as we get closer and closer to the time of when these prophecies are going to be fulfilled on planet Earth. And so it's natural that the earlier prophecies are going to contain less detail, and the later prophecies are going to contain more, greater details. We kind of zoom in. And it even happens in the book of Daniel. When you start earlier on in Daniel's visions with Daniel chapter 2, and then you jump all the way to Daniel chapter 7, and then you read chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, finishing out the book, you get more and more granular, is what the, the word we use, as you zoom, if you want to think of like a Google map, granular means zooming in on the map so that you can see more than just um, you know, big swaths of, of, of um, area. Rather, when you zoom in, you get more granular, or more grainy, if you want to think, that's the word I'm referring to. Then you get more detail you can get down to the street view you can start getting to see more shops and things like that you can see the side alleys etc that's what happens in the book of daniel and it happens in the whole bible so the fourth kingdom is the thing that's in view then another king uh Richardson says, um, another king, an 11th, will arise. You can think of it as 11th, will arise and will displace three of the previous kings. So we're reading through uh, Joel Richardson's book and we're borrowing his notes to talk about this topic of the Antichrist. We're not really uh, deep diving into Islam or anything like that, as I keep mentioning uh, in other previous uh, studies. This is not a, um, an expose on Islam or anything like that. Really, the, the reason, let me just interject for a split second because there are a lot of people who send me emails, comments, and want to know what, what's what's the take? Why are we even dealing with this topic? I'm not interested in Islam. Can you get back into the Bible, Ariel? Um, a lot of some people are a little confused. Um, okay, I understand. The from my understanding, and this is Joel Richardson's understanding as well, Islam it could quite possibly or probably play a very important role in the end time events, particularly when we're talking about the beast empires that Satan is going to be utilizing or has utilized down through the ages since time began, and is going to utilize once again in his final effort to try to thwart God's plans to establish the kingdom here on earth. We already know that Yeshua is going to return. Right, that's a that that's going to happen no matter what Satan does. He cannot stop that event. But what Satan can do is because he's been given authority based on man's um, uh, rebellion against God way back in the garden. He usurp, uh, he allowed Satan to usurp the authority and to to take a measured amount of control over certain events on planet Earth. Although he's on a leash, what but what Satan does is he has utilized certain. Um, Gentile powers to his advantage to persecute God's people and to try to upset the plans of God by um, preventing uh, certain people groups from coming into existence or preventing the Messiah from coming into existence. So within all these beast empires, we're working our way down to the final end of days before the kingdom of God led by Yeshua is going to be established on planet Earth. That event is going to be preceded by Satan's final um, push to uh, uh, take control over planet Earth and to bring all of humanity into slavery under, and under satanic um, rule. 
and he's going to be utilizing his own puppet known as the Antichrist, who himself has another puppet, another minion known as the False Prophet. So where does Islam fit in? Islam has their own eschatological perspective of the end time events. They've got their own key players just like the Bible does. And there's a kind of a one-to-one -one parallel between the players in Islam's view of the end times and the Bible's view of the end times. Of course, as Christians, we hold to the biblical worldview. We don't hold to an Islamic worldview. That's just a given. So why is this topic important to us as Christians if we're not holding to an Islamic worldview? Is because there's a very strong probability that Islam would become one of those key instruments utilized by Satan to persecute not just God's people once again in the end times, but to um, set up his... Uh, uh, set up its headquarters in Jerusalem and to launch its worldwide persecution, what we might call the seven-year tribulation, although I don't believe it's seven years long, but the, tr the, the tribulation and persecution that'll take place in the end times could very well be um, led by kind of an Islamic religious move uh, that spreads over the entire world, where Islam wants to say, we're the religion of the world now, we're the world's religion. And that could be a very strong possibility, and I think it's even a strong probability that that could could be the case. We're still looking at a one world religion, but that the Antichrist is going to utilize to kind of uh, one religion to rule them all, to borrow a kind of a phrase that's very um, Tolkien-esque, right? One religion to rule them all, right? One ring to rule them all. One religion to rule them all, at least up until a certain point, about the halfway point, and then, then Antichrist is going to even... Um, uh, throw them off right he's gonna he's gonna throw them under the bus uh right they're gonna be duped as well so this is one of the reasons why it's important for us to have this perspective and to um consider the possibility that islam is not getting is not going to be getting smaller anytime soon rather instead they're going to be getting they're going larger and larger till there's there's there'll come a point where it's impossible for christianity to just kind of ignore them as an alternate religion they'll become a tool in the hands of Satan to where they might even be utilized to persecute, obviously Israel, but also Christians. They'll, be, they'll, they'll you know, convert or die is the point I'm trying to say. It could come down to that. I hope it doesn't, honestly. I hope it doesn't. But uh, we need to be prepared either way. And based on a lot of the clues found in the Bible, and in, in prophecies and some of the markers that indicate um, who this last end time one world religion could be. Uh, Islam certainly has a lot of the uh, check marks checked off um, as far as um, prerequisites or, or um, um, earmarks as to who it could be. So let's keep reading this. Hope you're not tuning out just yet. As a Christian, this 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 um, material should be important to you. And um, even if you don't think you're going to go through any of this, right? You think you're going to be raptured away. You're a pre-tribber. Um, you owe it to yourself to listen and to pay attention for your loved ones' sakes and for your friends and family members who might not be Christians and might possibly go through this horrible time uh, coming to planet Earth probably very, very soon. This is what Joel has to say. We're reading through this part very quickly because I've already read it um, so we can get to the new material. The 11th king is the Antichrist, who is first referred to as the little horn, right? We're still talking about Daniel. Thus, we see that based on the vision that Daniel was given, the Antichrist is a future king who will first gain control over three other kingdoms 
kings or nations and eventually over 10 so that's where the 10 toes even though there there's not they're not named 10 there are obviously 10 toes um to a humanoid statue but they are the the, the uh, ten kingdoms and the ten horns are definitely mentioned elsewhere in scripture, so we know there's ten. We don't have to guess. Um, thus, uh, Richardson says, forming his future ten nation beast empire, and that beast empire is whether you like it or not is most definitely using other Old Testament passages such as Ezekiel 38, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera is definitely centered in the part of the world today that we recognize as the Middle East. If you look at the nations that are surrounding Israel on a map today, it is predominantly Arab Muslim controlled nations, right? That surround Israel right there in the in the land bridge that forms Israel between uh, Asia Minor to her north and um, Egypt to her south and upper Africa and things like that. So Europe, when we're looking at that model, is a little farther west to Israel. One day, all the nations are going to turn on Israel. So that would include Europe in that particular scenario. But in the short term, when we're talking about Antichrist setting up his 10-nation coalition and overthrowing three of those 10 and using them as a power base, as it were, um, numerous scriptures give us, and prophecies, which makes up like about a quarter of the Bible, over a quarter of the Bible is, is end-time prophecy. So you dare not ignore it. But we're looking at the very um, reality of the Antichrist um, first becoming a friend of Israel to help establish some sort of um, stability in the Middle East where Israel and her immediate Arab, Palestinian, Muslim neighbors can have some form of you know, a, a, a non-aggression pact where they're not firing weapons at each other anymore for a while. And somehow there's a measured amount of, um, I don't know, ecumenical peace that allows for Judaism and Islam and some of the other religions that are competing there for the Temple Mount to have some form of agreement or, or you know, shake hands. Will Israel build a temple up there? I don't know. But something will happen that will make this world leader that we call Antichrist seem like a good guy for a while, for the first half of the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. And then in the midpoint, he's going to turn on everybody. He's going to turn on Israel. He's going to turn on Islam. He's going to basically... Um, declare himself to be the god of this world, right? That's Satan's voice speaking through him. And at that point in time, tribulation is going to break out primarily in the Middle East, but it can spill out into the rest of the world. So when we're looking at the map, most of the details are going to ha start in Israel. That'll be kind of be the epicenter in Jerusalem, but they're going to spread. According to the book of Revelation, this will be a worldwide um, takeover, right? Uh, and we'll, we'll deal with how that can be, how, uh, how Satan's going to maintain control over places that are farther away from the Middle East. We'll get with those details in, in, in time in this study. But remember, for now, we're looking at this event uh, because these particular topics have to be dealt with almost like individually on their own. We can't just jump into the book of Revelation without having some background to uh, the key players. And, and Antichrist is no small player. He is a, definitely a key player. So uh, Richardson uh, continues in this paragraph, it will be an empire of unparalleled power and ferocity which will, quote, devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it, end quote. And again, just like all the other beast empires that 
Satan utilized down through ages, down through the ages. At the time when they were in existence, they were the dominant world power, and they certainly exercised a measure of control over Israel and Jerusalem at that time. However, with each succeeding beast empire, as time moved forward, the ones that Satan utilized, they not only grew in power, but they grew in size. So it makes no, it should be no wonder to us that when he, when he gets to this final seventh beast empire, um, I'm sorry, the, the, yeah, the seventh, which turns into the eighth, then it's no wonder that, or it's no, no, um, should be no mystery to us that it would be another world dominating empire, but this time because of technology and because of, um, explosions in, um, modern, uh, you know, um, not just communications but in travel that uh, and as well as weaponry that um this world empire will this time actually uh circle the entire globe rather than just a, a large part of the middle east okay so that's where we left off so let's pick up uh mr richardson's notes starting right here joel says in the last part of daniel chapter 7 the angel that Daniel's having this encounter with. He describes to Daniel the actions of this king as well as his end. Uh, again, I'm going to recommend that you always root, that you always ground your study on in in end times in the Old Testament first. I know many of you are just kind of chomping at the bit. You're sending me emails and, and putting comments on my videos. Ariel, when are you going to get to the book of Revelation? Isn't this a book of Revelation study? When are you going to get to the book of Revelation? And my answer is yes, this is a book of Revelation study in times, I mean eschatology. And yes, we are going to get to, get to the book of Revelation, but we first have to go through all the major Old Testament prophecies, and then we're going to jump into the Olivet Discourse um, say, teachings that Yeshua left us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is absent. He doesn't have any no Olivet Discourse uh, verses there. And then we're going to uh, look through Paul's writings, and then some of the minor letters left around by left by Peter and 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 um, uh, Paul to Timothy, etc. And then we will get to the Book of Revelation. So just um, be patient, but this is the right way to go about it. Right. This is the way we have to go because this establishes the foundation necessary to even appreciate all of the heavy quotes from the uh, Old Testament that the book of Revelation utilizes. Indeed, I'll say this and then I'll shut up. Um, my good study buddy who's in the uh, live study with me right now, he and I were chatting about the um, kind of the modern a skeptical phenomenon of doubting the book of Revelation's authenticity and its place in the canon of Bible, which is kind of vogue by today's modern skeptics. Um, I mean, for hundreds of years, um, the, the book of Revelation has enjoyed its place in the canon unquestioned. But, you know, recent scholarship uh, likes to attack the Word of God by questioning whether or not the book of Revelation belongs there because of its strange writing nature, its apocalyptic nature, and some other details. And he and I we're chatting about how that well even if at worst case scenario the skeptic removes the book of revelation from his own bible most of the details that the book of revelation offers have already been presented in other parts of the bible so as to establish the message that the book of revelation 
compiles anyway. It's not like, in other words, said a different way. It's not like John was just making up all kinds of new things on his own. And since it's the revelation of Yeshua to John, Yeshua has already given us copious amounts of details in his own writings elsewhere, since Yeshua is the author of the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. So, even if we were to take out the book of Revelation, we'd still be prepared as Christians, but we don't need to because the book of Revelation bears witness to what the um, witness of the Old Testament and the other parts of the New Testament writings have already supplied for us. So that when we do get to the book of Revelation, we're simply reading what we might call icing on the cake, but the whole cake is still there. In my little analogy here, the cake is the Old Testament and the Gospels, and the icing is the book of Revelation on top of the cake. So even if you scraped off the topping, you'd still have a cake there. So, all right, that being said, Here's another quote. This time it is from the book of Daniel. And then we're going we're gonna to pull some um, quotes here from uh, Revelation as well. Daniel says, speaking of this um, final world ruler, this Antichrist, this beast, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time times and half a time that's of course three and a half years the the final three and a half year of the seven year last final 70th week of daniel that's the time times and half a time there daniel continues but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever that's daniel 7 25 and 27 and that's good news for those of us who are wondering how bad is it going to get and should I be worried? Well, it's going to get pretty bad. It's going to get so bad. Yeshua talks about how it'll be the worst time ever on planet Earth when we're talking about as far as tribulation. However, Daniel has already revealed the end to us by telling us that the Antichrist will meet his end, right? And the true king of Earth, the true king of heaven, the true ruler of planet Earth, not the one who has usurped his authority, right? The, the the puppet god of this world at the moment, but the true god of this earth, the true king, will establish his kingdom on planet earth as he ushers in the millennial kingdom where the saints will rule and reign with him. But it's going to get pretty bad before then. Here's what Joel Richardson has to say. The king is said, speaking of the Antichrist, he's said to oppress the saints of God for a period of time that most Bible scholars agree is three and a half years. In other words, a time, times, and half a time. And we're going to find out later on that this time period is also mentioned in Revelation, so it's not something that is that we have to guess at. Joel continues, but eventually, speaking of the Antichrist, his dominion will be taken away and replaced by the kingdom of the Most High God, something I just mentioned earlier. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. 300 years later from Daniel in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John likewise describes the Antichrist and his beast empire in very similar terms. So now let's pull a quote from the book of Revelation, right? Kind of like a little teaser for us. John writes, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. And I might pause and interject. I'm sorry. Ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns on his horns. Let me interject and say that this description of the Antichrist, this beast coming up out of the sea in Revelation chapter 13, is very, very reminiscent of the beast that's already described, the dragon that's described in Revelation chapter 12 that, Dan, that John sees. And he's also described as having seven heads 
heads and ten horns. It just reverses the wording there. So the Antichrist beast is described as ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. But the dragon, who is Satan, is described as having seven heads and ten horns. Just reverses the, the order. But like father, like son, right? The Antichrist is basically the son of perdition, the son of the devil. And so if his father is the devil, then it's no wonder that his description of the, the heads and the horns is very similar to his papa. Let's keep reading John's revelation, or the revelation of Yeshua given to John. And on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw, so we're talking about the Antichrist that John is looking at. The beast that I saw resembled a leopard, right? This is reminiscent now of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel's four beasts vision of Daniel chapter 7. Remember, the there were four beasts. In order, there was the lion, then there was the leopard, then there was the bear, and then there was the fourth beast, which isn't given an animal description other than just the word beast. So four beasts, but the first one is a lion, which is Babylon. The second is the uh, leopard, which is Greece. I'm sorry, uh, meat, meat, uh, uh, the, the second one is the bear, which is Medes and the Persians. And then the third one is the leopard, which is Greece. And then the fourth one is the 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 strange beast. But notice in John's revelation, the same four beasts are there, but they're in reverse now. The beast, he says, I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. So the lion is the one mentioned last, which was the first in Daniel's. The bear was the second one in Daniel's, but here's the um, uh, third one. And then it talks about the leopard uh, and and uh, so we got the leopard, the bear, the lion, and it's the beast itself, which is the fourth one in Daniel. But here in, in John, it's the first thing, right? So the beast that I saw. So that's the point uh, that you're supposed to clue into. Um, so it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. What does this mean? Likely is that it's going to be a composite beast composed or composited of characteristics not just of, of those beasts that Daniel saw, but more importantly, composited of the beast empires that Daniel was describing. So this final eighth beast will somehow have some of the characteristics of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece and Rome before it. It'll, you know, the fourth beast in, in Daniel would be the uh, Rome, but Rome was also the beast itself, that, 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 that fourth beast, which is Rome slash not Rome, right? A little confusing because there's a now and not yet feature going on there. A little bit of prophetic telescoping. So let's keep reading um, uh, this quote from the book of Revelation. And, and I believe Mr. Richardson's going to explain what I'm just kind of getting ahead of myself. Uh, the, uh, the book of Revelation says the dragon, remember that's Satan in Revelation chapter 12, the dragon gave the beast, which is Antichrist, gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. This is why we say that the Antichrist will essentially be Satan incarnate, right? The man of of lawlessness, like Paul calls him, or the son of perdition, like um, uh, the, uh, I believe it's uh, the book of Titus, whatever it describes him as, um, or the book of John. So, um, or one of the first Johns, the first, second, or third John, one of the smaller letters. Uh, Revelation continues, men worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast 
And John mentions that they also worshipped the beast. Notice there's what we call divided worship, but that ultimately is centered in Satan. So Satan gives the Antichrist his power and authority. So men worship the Antichrist, but this means that they're ultimately worshiping Satan. And John tells us this uh, matter-of-factly. Men worship the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worship the beast. Even though, from a human perspective, they may not realize they're worshiping Satan, when they end up finally worshiping the Antichrist, when the time comes, they might not realize that it's Satan who's giving the Antichrist his power, and therefore they will not realize that it's satanic worship. But the Bible, make no mistake, the Bible says that it's satanic worship. Ultimately, the root of the worship that's um, directed towards the Antichrist will actually be satanic worship. And we're going to find out later on that... Um, there are religious systems already built and already set into place, uh, not just within uh, some forms of Christianity like Catholicism, but Islam itself has a way for you to worship um, Allah and yet also direct worship towards other people like Muhammad or something like that. Uh, the 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 um the Mahdi. You can worship the Mahdi and you can worship Allah, and it's not blasphemous, right? Even Christianity has kind of a a sense of that where we worship God and we also worship Yeshua, who is God's representative here on earth, but yet is also God incarnate. So we're worshiping Yeshua, who's a man, but it's not idolatrous because Yeshua is very God. Well, in Islamic in the Islamic parallel, Mahdi the Mahdi must be a kind of representative of Allah here on earth in order for worship to be directed to the Mahdi, and yet at the same time. Beast, you can still direct as a Muslim your worship towards uh, Allah. Well, the Bible says they're going to worship the Antichrist, and yet they're worshiping Satan. So you see how that's kind of paralleling there. And so John says the 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 people who are on earth they worship the beast and they ask who is like the beast, right? Who can make war against him? It's kind of this adoration for him. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words, right? This harks all the way back to Daniel, um, Daniel chapter seven, to utter. Uh, proud words and blasphemies and look here's the part that's a little alarming for christians to exercise his authority for 42 months and what is he going to be doing for those 42 months well he's given a space to um kind of uh, exert his authority and to uh, persecute Christians and those who oppose him. Uh, Revelation continues, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name, keep reading, and his dwelling place, right, that's Jerusalem, the temple, and those who live in heaven as well. He was given power, watch this, to make war against the saints and to conquer them. So, this idea that, well... You know, the devil doesn't have any authority over me because I'm a genuine believer. Well, in the spiritual sense, that is true, right? Uh, as true believers, there's only so much damage that the, de the devil can do in your life if you're living obediently God to God and listening to his spirit and you don't have um, copious amounts of personal sin that are that's um, uh, plaguing your li your life as a believer right if if you're giving the devil a foothold well then he's going to take that opportunity he's going to exploit that weakness in your life that chink in your armor that open door or open window that you've afforded him you know if you're trying to live your life as a genuine follower of Christ uh, you know and you 
you want to have a powerful witness in your life, but at the same time, you're watching porn all the time, that's not going to work, right? Because you're opening up doorways to the enemy and allowing him to, uh, to cloud your judgment and he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna have strongholds in your life. So, within the scope of living, living your life as a Christian, ultimately, obviously, he who is within you is more powerful than he's in, who he was in the world, right? Yeshua is within us. The power of God lives within us, resides within us, if you're a genuine child of God. And so, therefore, Satan can't ultimately touch you unless God allows it or, or you allow those um, paths into your life through, I just mentioned porn, but that's just one example, right? Drug use or, or uh, violence or, or um, jealousies or fra uh, fa factionism or adultery or fornication or... Um, you know, you name it, uh, you know, occult uh, involvement or in any, any number of different doorways into your soul and into your psyche uh, as a Christian. But what we're reading here in the book of Revelation is something entirely different. God actually gives Satan a measured amount of persecution over the saints of God and to conquer them, to actually kill us as believers. Yeshua says this as well. We're going to get to this eventually in Matthew and in, and in Mark and Luke, the Olivet Discourse, right? Uh, Yeshua warned his disciples, they're going to haul you into the synagogues, they're going to haul you into uh, their places, and they're going to they're gonna think they're doing God a favor by killing you, taking your very life. So, uh, there's going to come a time when Satan will have a measured amount of persecution over the saints of God. John continues, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Notice the um, universal, global scope of his persecution is not just going to be in Israel, people. It's not just going to be there in the Middle East. Eventually, as I keep mentioning, it's going to spill out over to the entire world. John continues, all inhabitants of the earth. Listen and repeat after me. All inhabitants of the earth. Right? That's not just the people in the Middle East or Jerusalem where the Antichrist sets up its headquarters at the midpoint. No. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb. So, we're talking about people who aren't believers. Uh, we can call them earth dwellers. Um, all those people who uh, don't have their names written in the book of, the, of life belonging to the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So, that's Revelation 13, 2, 4 through 8. Now, let's listen to what um, Joel Richardson has to say about what we just read. So, he's going to comment. While the symbolic language here is fairly thick, if we understand the biblical usage of particular symbolic terms, then the picture is actually quite clear. The beast, again, refers to the Antichrist, who is a king over a ten-nation empire. Uh, we're reading from Joel Richardson's book, The Islamic Antichrist, which is available not only on his website, but is also available in uh, HTML version, like I'm reading now, at answeringislam.org. So, um, follow the links in the description of my video below, and you can uh, read the book for yourself in its entirety. Or, if you want to support Joel's ministry, you can buy it from Amazon.com. The link is also in the description below. Joel continues. The horns that John talked about represent authority and power. Ten horns speak of both an extremely high degree of authority as well as the number of nations and their kings that will unite to form the beast's kingdom. Joel continues. 
the dragon who gives the beast his authority is Satan. And we know this from reading Revelation chapter 12, the chapter earlier than the, the quote we just pulled from. Joel continues, Satan is often spoken of in the Bible as a dragon or a serpent. The global impact of this beast-like empire is made clear by the phrase, quote, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, end quote. So Joel says, we see the specific question that the people of the earth ask is, and this is the question that we read in the book of Revelation, who is like the beast? Who can make war against them? Joel remarks, it appears to those on the earth that the beast is absolutely beyond challenge. And let me just interject. This gives us kind of an insight into the scope of his influence and his apparent military might, as well as political uh, power that he's going to be exerting at the time. So it's, it seems like when we read to the prophecies that the Antarctic is going to kind of start off very maybe innocent, very small. He's even going to um, suffer some defeats uh, from some setbacks in his, in his political career here and there. But eventually, once he reaches the midpoint and um, Satan is cast down to earth, right? Revelation chapter, end of Revelation chapter 12, Michael and his angels make war with the devil and his angels in heaven. And the devil and his angels or demons, they lose and they get cast out of heaven permanently and they're cast down to earth. And the devil, I'm paraphrasing, the devil, because of this, he's very angry and he goes off to make war with the woman who's Israel and the rest of her offspring, that is, those who hold to the commandments of God and keep the testimony of Jesus. So we're talking about Jews and Christians. And this takes place at the midpoint of the week, right? That's when the Antichrist is fully revealed to the inhabitants of planet Earth, both believers and non-believers who will be uh, alive at that time. And it will begin what we could call the Great Tribulation, because it's the wrath of Satan that's poured out before the wrath of God itself is poured out afterwards in the final, uh, we might say, final quarter of the uh, seventh week. So the point is that at some point in time, the earth dwellers are going to still be adoring him. They're going to be uh, giving their worship to him, and he's going to be implementing his worldwide beast system of taking the mark, right, the number of his name, uh, worshiping the image that's set up, or, or it could be images. The Greek allows for either one one giant image or several smaller images along with a lo one large image. Could be either or. And we have the mark of the beast that's um, um, put on either the hand or the forehead, or you take the number of his name, which is you know six six six, etc. etc. So you gotta you gotta have one of these uh, in order to survive during that day. So it's no wonder that people are saying who's like the beast, right? Who can make war against him? He's he. In other words, this statement from the earth dwellers indicates that he will have enough military might and enough political power and apparently enough um, resources uh, to actually control um, whatever portion of planet Earth that he wishes, right? He will, he will be basically unchallenged. So, um, Joel says it appears that those on the earth that the, those on the earth that the beast is absolutely beyond challenge, right? They'll, they'll think that. Of course, we've read the end of the book. We know that he is not without challenge. We know that ultimately Yeshua is going to challenge him, and praise God, Yeshua is going to defeat him. So let's keep reading um, Joel here.
And again, we see, Joel says, the same specific period of time that was given to the beast to persecute God's people as 42 months. Um, 42 months is three and a half years, which is 1260 days. And it's mentioned in a few different places in the Bible in various ways to kind of give us the confirmation that we're not just guessing when we talk about this time period. It's the last half of the seventh week. 42 months, like Joel says, is three and a half years. And this same time frame was given in the previously cited passage of Daniel 7.25. Let's keep reading Joel Richardson. We've got uh, about 20 minutes left in our study, and we're making great time. Joel continues, Thus we have seen that the Bible prophesies that the Antichrist, I think there's a typo there, it says prophecies, but it's prophesies, prophesies that the Antichrist will be a political and military leader whose power will be unparalleled by any other world leader throughout history. You could think of it as all of the previous beast empires rolled into one final composite beast like we mentioned we've got in order and i'll flash a little graphic on the screen so you can follow along there were seven beast empires that preceded this final eighth beast empire and in order they are egypt assyria babylon medo-persia greece rome and then after rome which is the sixth beast empire the seventh beast empire is a bit vague because it falls into that time frame on the eschatological map known as the gap or the church age so it's not entirely certain which um empire that ruled on planet earth was that seventh there are good uh there's a good amount of support for it being uh the nazi regime ruled by uh, hitler at the time during world war ii that could be a candidate but there's even an earlier candidate according to joel richardson that fits the bill uh maybe even more scripturally which is the ottoman empire or the turkish caliphate and so ruled by the, the, the you know ruled by islam at the time so that could have been the seventh beast empire as well so it's one of the two but either way the point is that by the time the antichrist establishes the eighth beast empire on planet earth it will have a scope and power that was never before really even actualized by any of the other previous seven and yet at the same time it will be kind of a composite of all the seven rolled up into one so i mean imagine you know the the wicked pharaohs the the wicked um rulers of babylon the the wicked rulers of uh you know alexander the great uh in greece um uh you know antiochus epiphanes uh in syria and then we've got um uh, the, the wicked Caesars that persecuted the Christians in Rome. And then let's put throw in there, we've got the imams of the Turkish Caliphate or Hitler, depending on which view you take on who's the seventh. We, can, we roll all of those wicked rulers into one man and we'll call him the Antichrist. That's what we're looking at in the future. All right, we've got, like I said, about 15, 17 minutes left. Let's jump into this topic in Joel Richardson's book called, the, the topic is called The Mahdi as World Ruler. Now remember, as I mentioned earlier, Islam has their own eschatological model of the end times. And the, the kind of um, 
eerily scary perspective to us as Christians is that they've got parallels to our own understanding of three main figures. They call them signs in in uh, Islamic eschatology, but um, they're basically three men or three figures. In this order, and I touched on this a few weeks back when I did an overview of Islamic eschatology, so go back and listen to previous studies, but there are three main figures in this order. There's the Mahdi, whose direct one-to-one -one parallel from a biblical perspective is the Antichrist. That's, that's the one-to-one -one there. And then the second figure in Islamic eschatology is the Islamic Jesus. They call him Isa, right? The Arabic word for Jesus, Isa. His one-to-one -one parallel in biblical um, model is not Jesus. His one-to-one -one parallel is actually the false prophet in the book of Revelation, right? It's the dynamic duel that I um, alluded to with Batman and Robin. Batman would be the Mahdi. Robin would be the Islamic Jesus or Isa. Or in the biblical model, Batman would be Antichrist and Robin would be the false prophet. So there's the one-to-one -one parallels there between those two. And then the third figure in Islamic eschatology is the figure known as the Dajjal. And the Dajjal is the antagonist in the story. He's the bad guy in Islamic mindset. He is the enemy that fights against the Mahdi, who is their savior, their, their Messiah figure. And so you ready for the one-to-one -one parallel? Uh, in the biblical model, who is the parallel to the, the, the to the uh, Dajjal? Guess what? He's Jesus Christ himself. Yeah, he's the true Messiah in the Bible. That's the one-to-one -one parallel to the Dajjal in the Islamic model. So what you're seeing is we've got this, essentially, a perversion of the true biblical characters, the three of them, that have been perverted and borrowed and almost plagiarized, really, in the Islamic model uh, of those three characters. And so this is why it becomes just a bit unnerving to some Christians when we realize that if the Islamic model plays out and, and it ends up being accurate, then we're talking about a world religion that will look at the true Jesus as the bad guy, the enemy who fights against their true champion, savior, messiah, the Mahdi, which to us Christians is actually the Antichrist, right? I mean, this gets really, you know, flipped on its head. It's like, it's like Superman versus Bizarro, right? Or Flash versus um, Reverse Flash or, or something to that effect, right? So it's, 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 it really is a... Um, uh, an interesting story that we're going to be reading. So, the Mahdi as world ruler. Remember, this word Mahdi can be also seen in, if you do internet searches, Mahdi, or you can hear people just pronounce it as Mahdi. They don't make the H very breathy. All right, let's read through Joel Richardson's uh, notes here. We've got about 14 minutes left. Uh, Joel has this to say As we have seen from the Islamic traditions and Muslim scholars, <clears throat> The Mahdi, like the Antichrist, is also prophesied to be a political and military world leader unparalleled by any other throughout world history. So we're talking about a ruler that's going to hit the scene who basically is the final culmination of Satan's attempt to overthrow God's uh, kingdom here on planet Earth, which is established already spiritually, but it's not set up physically. Satan's going to do his one last-ditch effort to destroy God's people, this time both Christians as well as Jews, 
and to overthrow uh, Messiah's rule on planet Earth um, or prevent it from even happening. Uh, Joel continues, the Mahdi is said to, quote, fight against the forces of evil, lead a world revolution, and set up a new world order based on justice, righteousness, and virtue. And there's a footnote number one there, I believe, that points to either a, um, like a, a prominent Muslim cleric. Uh, I believe, since the world, the, the language sounds very um, modern, I don't think that's a quote from the uh, the Quran, but he does have quotes from the Quran in his predictor study. Joel continues, at this time, speaking of the 70th week of Daniel, according to Islamic tradition, which this, I, I gotta insert this now before I forget, as far as parallels within Islamic eschatology, they even, and I believe they took this directly from the book of Revelation, Muhammad had access to the book of Revelation, obviously. Um, they even described this final coming time period when these three figures will show up, the Mahdi, the uh, uh, Muslim Jesus, and the Dajjal. They even describe it as a seven-year time period where the Mahdi will establish a, a, a covenant on earth for a seven-year time period. Isn't that an interesting parallel that this directly one-to-one -one corresponds with Daniel uh, description of the final seven-year covenant that he that the Antichrist either strengthens or even makes with uh, Israel right so let's keep reading at this time according to Islamic tradition the Mahdi this is Joel Richardson's words is said to preside over the entire earth as the final caliph of Islam so we're talking about the 12th Imam that's another nickname for the Mahdi the 12th Imam they've got 11 Imams that have existed or spiritual leaders that have existed and then this final uh, imam or uh, caliph uh, will rise to the scene. This Mahdi, which is the um, the enlightened one, I think, if I remember what his name uh, 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 interpreted means from the Arabic, the Mahdi. Um, they're looking for this final uh, ruler to establish um, worldwide uh, rulership. In other words, establish Islam as a world religion. Remember what they're saying in Islam today. It's our religion today, but it's your religion tomorrow, right? It's the fastest growing religion on planet Earth, um, outpacing Christianity like four to one. If I remember uh, reading the uh, the um, numbers, the the uh, the um, reports, the most recent reports, uh, outpacing uh, Christianity. And in the next, say, as short as uh, twenty years, Islam will be the top religion in the world. So, so billions of followers. Um, Joel continues. And of course, as we saw in the last chapter, if you're reading the book, chapter four, the Muslims will, quote, take the world administration in their hands and Islam will be victorious over all the religions. So in the Islamic eschatology model, the Islamic model of end times, Islam overtakes the world as the final religion and imposes its rule over all other religions. Of course, this is in comparison to the European model of the Antichrist, where he also establishes a one-world religion, but it's probably something that resembles a form of ecumenical um, religion where he allows all the religions to kind of coexist equally, and yet at the same time, they're also giving their allegiance to the Antichrist behind the scenes. So he is the god of this world, 
and yet at the same time he allows all the other religions to exist kind of co co at the same time coexist right you've seen the bumper stickers coexist i'll go ahead and flash a little graphic on the screen in case you guys aren't following along with what i'm talking about so in both of these models we have a one world religious system that it that that exists for a certain amount of time my reckoning as i understand end time prophecy it exists for the first three and a half years right that's it's it's it is in existence up until that time period until the middle point of the week when the 10 nation coalition along with the antichrist they to use john's words in revelation chapter 17 they end up hating the woman which is the religious part the religious system mystery babylon they end up hating her and burning her with fire and destroying her and that that kind of corresponds with the midpoint of the week. So whether we're talking about the point I'm trying to highlight, and I'll keep reading uh, Joel Richardson, whether we're talking about a kind of a one world ecumenical system where all religions exist co-equally in the end days, in the end times, or we're talking about one world Islamic system, right? One world uh, uh, Islamic religion. Either way, um, this religious system will probably only um, have uh significant influence up until about the midpoint of the week and then after that it's gonna it's gonna see a significant a uh, nosedive diminishment uh in its um influence worldwide let's keep reading joel richardson he says without question islam views the mahdi as one whose rule will extend over all the earth right and that's straight out of islamic eschatology they're not satisfied with just ruling certain countries in the middle east rather according to their eschatology eschatological model islam must become the dominant religion in the entire world indeed overtaking all other religions because all other religions are false now this should sound familiar to christians because essentially this is the biblical model the biblical worldview already biblical worldview is that christianity is the only one true religion and that eventually it will overtake all other religions when jesus establishes his uh, righteous kingdom here on planet earth and rules from the middle east from jerusalem right what is isaiah chapter to say um, that uh, he's going to establish his rule from Zion, right? The Torah will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, Isaiah chapter 2. So we know that Yeshua is going to rule from Jerusalem there. Is it Christianity that's going to go forth from Jerusalem? Is it Judaism that's going to go forth? Is it Islam? Is it one of those three Abrahamic religions? Is it going to be Buddhism, right? Is it going to be Shintoism? Is it going to be um, uh, Hinduism? You know, what's going to rule from, <laughs> what's going to be the religion of, of Yeshua? kingdom well christians believe that it's christianity or some form of messianic judaism of course because it talks about the torah going forth so it obviously has a flavor of judaism to it but with jesus being the king obviously it's going to be a form of christianity well islam in their theology says no that's not going to be the case because christianity is not the true religion christianity is a perversion of the truth Christianity has been preferred by the Christians. They they want Jesus to return, and in their eschatological model, Jesus does return. Remember, they've got a, a Muslim Jesus. But he doesn't return as a Christian to establish Christianity or even Messianic Judaism. Are we ready for this? Jesus, in their model, returns to establish Islam. That's because Jesus, in their model, is a devout Muslim. All right, let's keep reading. Joel says, clearly then we see that the Antichrist and the Mahdi are both described as being political and military leaders, the likes 
of which the world has never seen before. While many powerful leaders have arisen throughout world history, like I talked about, the descriptions given concerning both the Antichrist and the Mahdi surpass any that have yet arisen. And that should cause a bit of concern, even if the Islamic perspective is accurate uh, is inaccurate if it's wrong let's say that joel richardson's wrong in his model of the islamic antichrist let's say he got it all wrong and it turns out to be a european version of antichrist where he comes out of europe somewhere and he establishes a european union as 10 nation coalition and he allows for kind of an ecumenical version of religion to rule for the first three and a half years let's say that's the case either way his military might is described by the bible as being greater than any of that the world has ever seen and he still exercises a control over the world where he at the midpoint turns on everybody and forces everybody to recognize him as the only true god he sets up his um headquarters in jerusalem that doesn't change no matter which model you're looking at and um he also establishes his mark system you know the mark of the beast etc etc where you cannot buy or sell unless you take uh the mark so either way that doesn't change whether you're looking at the european model of the antichrist or you're looking at the islamic model of the antichrist all right we've got about four minutes left let's keep uh, going through uh, joel's notes here but the Mahdi, Joel says, and the Antichrist are both described as being more than merely political and military leaders. In case um, those of you are saying, well, I'm not really into politics, I'm not really into military, I'm not really even worried about that. Joel mentions they are both viewed as being supreme religious leaders as well. So it's like he's got all of his bases covered. If you're into religion, He's going to influence your religious life. He's going to make make things very difficult for you as a religious man or woman, boy or girl on planet Earth when the time comes. Or if you're into politics, he's going to make your life very difficult as a, as a political-minded person. Or if you're into kind of power and uh, uh, wealth and all that comes with military might and things like that, he's going to make your life very difficult. Essentially, God is going to allow him to have a... Um, uh, an influence on the world that Paul describes, and, and we're winding down our study in these last few minutes, Paul describes as a, um, a great deception, a great falling away. And so the time period on planet Earth, as we're, when we finally get to the book of uh, Thessalonians, Paul's letters, the time period that's going to take place, at, uh, the, the events that are going to be taking place on planet Earth at this time are going to be of such a magnitude and because of the main players who are on the scene the two most powerful beings in the universe god and satan not that they're equal in their power but they are the two most powerful because both of those beings are going to have a um a direct uh um, influence over what's taking place on the chessboard, which is planet Earth, no one will be able to escape the influence one way or the other. If you're not being hit with the deception that Antichrist is going to be serving up and Satan himself, then God himself is going to send a strong delusion so that you will believe the lie. Understand what I'm saying here? A lot of people are like, well, I'm just going to opt out, right? I'm going to shut off my brain at that point in time, and I'm just going to move out somewhere in the desert and live in a hole in the, ro in the a rock, a hole in the rock, 
or I'm going to go underground and, you know, I've got my bunker set up and I've got all my all my canned goods stocked up and I'm just going to get all my guns out. I've got lots of ammunition and it's going to be me against the world. I'm not going to take any mark. I'm not going to um, I'm not going to worship the Antichrist. I'm not going to be any, take any political side. I'm not going to give my allegiance to anybody. I'm not going to, you know, do anything. I'm just going to be myself. And so I'm going I'm to make it through. I'm going to make it through. I think you're missing the point, people. That doesn't seem to be feasible in this time because Satan is much more powerful than, than that type of scenario. And God himself will be fighting against those who are not true believers. So you can't just think, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna resist, right? It's the, it's the whole, and I'm closing with this, it's the whole board principle. You ready for it? Resistance is futile. Yeah, during that time, resistance will be futile. So in closing, in these last 60 seconds of my study, here's my recommendation, right? Make your decision for Christ now, before the things really get heated up, before we enter into that 70th week, before the birth pangs are upon us, right? Now, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can make a decision for the true Christ, whose name is Jesus, right? You can invite him into your life now and allow the Holy Spirit to, to move into you and to give you what it takes to, to be an overcomer in that day. Now, I'm sorry to tell you, but overcoming means possible possibly losing your life for martyrdom, but you'll save your very soul, right? What's the big deal if you lose your life, but you're resurrected with Yeshua and you come back in return and we um, rule and reign with him uh, in his kingdom, All right? So make your decision for Yeshua today while things are somewhat calm. <laughs> I mean, I know the world is kind of crazy it is today, but, but given what we read about in the book of Revelation and in some of these prophecies, things are going to be absolutely out of control at some point in time. So, so make your decision now. That's going to do it for our study on um, end times. That'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture at Congregation K Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, 
uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity and as i always say be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others okay let's turn to a trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism my name is Ariban lyman hanavi and let's jump back into the study where we left off we are looking at this verse through the lens of biblical unitarian.com which is a non-trinitarian christian denomination so they believe in jesus as messiah they're christian in that regard but they view the bible through the lens of non-trinitarian they believe that god is the only sole deity that exists his name is yahweh and he's the father spoken of of by yeshua the second most important figure in their theology is Jesus, who is the true Messiah sent by God, but he's 100% human. He is not divine. He's not preexistent. He's not the Word made flesh in that regard. And then the Holy Spirit is simply another name for God himself, or alternately, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a name for the power that God anoints we humans with, we true believers, right? We're anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell upon us, but it's really just God himself. So that's their perspective of Trinity. They're non-Trinitarian. We're looking at this verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, as well as verse 5, but primarily verse 1, which reads out of the English and of this version of the um, Greek, uh, the, 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 the tool that I'm using, a psalm of David, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is a modified King James version that um, David um, Barich uses, uh, his uh, website. Yeah, um, those of you who are, who are on my in my Skype class right now or following the YouTube video, in the background, you're probably hearing cicadas. Yeah, it's because out here in Korea, these guys are waking up. Aren't they supposed to be like asleep in the ground for like 17 years? Well, anyway, um, the cicadas are in the background. So if you hear them, if it gets too loud, then I'll I'll close my uh, window here. Uh, if it's too distracting, uh, let me know. Um, but otherwise, uh, it's it's kind of humid here, so it's nice to have the windows open to keep me cool while I'm doing the study. Besides, it kind of gives me gives me a little bit of a natural sound, but we'll see. Anyway, that's who's that's that's what you're hearing in the background, cicadas. All right, so Psalm one ten verse one. In this modified version of the KJV that David Barrich is using, I'm using Greek doc dot GitHub uh, dot io. Um, there's a uh, there's English on the screen, and there's also Hebrew, and then there's Greek down at the bottom. So the um, the clause that that's most important to us. Um, 
Uh, that's really the part that biblical Unitarian says it's proof of a human Messiah is the first clause, well the second clause a Psalm of David is really the first clause, but the second clause Yahweh said to my Lord which in Hebrew corresponds to this part right here, Neum Yahweh Ladoni said the Lord unto the Lord of me, or my Lord and in Greek, let me highlight it for you, in Greek it would be this part, Apen ha kurios to kurio mu, said the Lord to the Lord of me. So, when we look at Biblical Unitarians' argument, I've highlighted their one of their central arguments against the Trinity. In a nutshell, they say, quote, this is from their website, the Bible in Psalm 110.1 actually gives the Messiah the title that never describes God. The word is Adoni, and in all of its 195 occurrences in the Old Testament, it means a superior who's human or occasionally angelic, created not God. So Psalm 110.1 presents the clearest evidence that the Messiah is not God, but a supremely exalted man. So, when we look at Biblical Unitarians' explanation of this particular verse, they believe that because of the technicalities in the Hebrew representation of the wording, that this is the psalmist's way of confirming 100%, right? They say it never describes God, that this word is describing a human agent. So, let's look at the words, right? Here we have this same clause in English, the Lord says to my Lord, and uh, what we looked at last week, and we'll continue to look at this with this week, is there are two lords in this verse, and then there's a third lord that shows up in verse 5 that warrants our attention. The first use of the word Lord is all caps L-O-R-D. That obviously is God the Father. That's Yahweh in the Hebrew, as we're going to see here in a moment. The second Lord, with only a capital L, and the other letters being lowercase, is, according to Biblical Unitarian, the human Jesus, the human Messiah. And yet, according to the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word Adoni, according to the Masoretic valid-pointing tradition that has been carried along for thousands of years. It's Adoni. And then when we get down to verse 5, I'll go ahead and show this to you right now. There's a third Lord, at least in the English, but it's actually the Hebrew Adonai, but it's pointing to the same Yahweh God the Father. The Hebrew is different. It's Adoni versus Adonai. And this difference, Biblical Unitarian says, is what proves that one Adon one Lord is divine and the other Lord is human. So let's look at the Hebrew just briefly real quick. This is the NASB that I'm borrowing. And so when we go over to the Hebrew and we look at the clause, this one, Neum Yahweh Ladoni, the word uh, for Adonai right here, the word for Lord, the second word for Lord, Adoni, is to be differentiated, obviously, from Yahweh. It's, I mean, it's easy to see that the tetragrammaton name up here, YHVH, is obviously God the Father. There's no question here that this is God the Father. No one is disputing that. Biblical Unitarian, non-Trinitarian groups, Trinitarian groups, Judaism, everybody agrees that this is God the Father, or just God. And yet, the question is over who the second Lord is. Biblical Unitarian says Adoni is proof positive that it's a human Jesus or a human, human figure. And they, they draw their contrast from, as I scroll down in the Hebrew, from, if you look at verse 5, 
the clause in question let's see we'll say it's this first clause right here the lord is at the lord is at your right hand right adonai al yamincha adonai this first let me highlight it here oops this first uh adonai right here is reminiscent of the adoni above in the hebrew but it has different vowel points which lead to a different pronunciation you, you have to listen you know in case you're not hearing it adonai versus adoni it's the vowel sound at the very end the second um syllable vowel sound all right so that's what biblical unitarians drawing their argument so last week we talked about these little vowel points they look like little dots and dashes to the untrained eye they actually all have different names as you can see on my screen here but that's not important to know the names the important part is knowing that there's two factors that you need to know about these vowel point uh, vowel points that you're seeing in front of you <clears throat> sorry about that two of the, the important points that i want to highlight in this discussion are this first and foremost is that these vowel markings did not exist at the time when jesus and the apostles were living on planet earth so in the first century these little vowel markings were not in use in the hebrew scriptures according to my um research they didn't show up till possibly fourth fifth or even sixth century all right so they're they're a later invention by the scribal families known as the masoretes so the masoretic families they're the ones who have been given the task of preserving the copies of the bible from generation to generation overseeing the copying and the um the the the, the handwritten manuscripts that that took place meticulously from century to century in judaism and they did a great job so one of the facts that we need to remember and i mentioned this last week so this is kind of segue info one of the facts that I mentioned is that these little dots and dashes didn't exist in Jesus' day during the time when Paul read his Tanakh, when he looked through his Old Testament Bible, he didn't see these little dots and dashes, okay? They weren't there. That's one thing we have to know. But the other thing we need to know is that even though the little dots and dashes weren't there, there was an oral tradition that was carried along that preserved a lot of the pronunciation of the word so when we go back to adoni versus adonai so when i pull up say a parallel version of the hebrew let me pull it up here and i talked about this last week as well we've got the westminster Leningrad codex uh, highlighted on my screen it's got little dots and dashes and then we've got the same codex without the little dots and dashes and then below that we have the Aleppo Codex without any dots or dashes either. When you look at these codices without the dots and dashes, well then the Hebrew words in question, Ladoni, we don't know if it's Ladoni or Ladonai because the dots and dashes are supplying the vowel sounds. And so without the little dots and dashes with our vowel markers, you wouldn't know whether it says Neum Yahweh Ladoni or Neum Yahweh Ladonai, unless you had a tradition that was also carried along that helped you pronounce the words the right way according to the understanding of what they should be. So that's the second aspect that must be dealt with when we're dealing with technical discussions and um, kind of doing a little bit of... Um, uh, Language, uh, textual criticism like we're doing right now 
Um, and my point that I brought up over and over again is that both of those those um, traditions are just that they are traditions and they are important traditions to judaism and to some extent they've been utilized by god and and uh to preserve his word i mean i'm not i'm not saying we need to toss those traditions i'm not saying they're not trustable and reliable but we also must factor in the reality that when the new testament writers began to have their eyes opened to the mystery of the Trinity and the incarnation that God has always been three persons. He didn't simply suddenly become three persons in the in the in the incarnation when Jesus came in uh, to planet Earth. That's not what happened. It's not that there's this drastic change, dramatic change from the uh, one person God to a three person God. That's not what's going on. Rather, God has always been three persons. It's just been veiled in mystery in the Old Testament. Um, there are glimpses of it, and there are hints of it, and there are little um, clues here and there in the Old Testament, but for the most part, it was hidden until God decided to reveal himself as, as Trinity in the New Testament, for the most part, in the incarnation of his son, Yeshua. So the point being is that when the New Testament writers started pinning the words of the New Testament that we have, then we have experiential Trinitarians who are writing from their own understanding supplied to them by the Holy Spirit of this mystery being unfolded, and therefore their eyes are open to the reality of this tripart God, this triune God, one in three and one he's one god yet he's three persons and thus when they go back and read their unvowel pointed tanakh it's entirely possible and probable that when they came to verses like this neum yahweh lado and they have to ask themselves is it truly ladoni or is it now that we know who yeshua truly is in his fullness as god is it actually rather neum yahweh ladonai the Lord said to the Lord, right? The divine person of the Father said to the divine person of the Son, who is very Adonai as well. Remember verse 5 that I read earlier? So let's keep going down that particular um, uh, discussion. Let's entertain this notion. And where am I getting the chutzpah to say that that's more likely what's going on and that the Masoretes kind of suppressed that understanding or hid that understanding from us. Where am I getting that? Well, number one, it's a tradition. It's a reliable tradition. I mean, it's trustable in most cases, the, the vowel pointing and the verbal tradition. I mean, there's nothing entirely inherently wrong with it, but we also must understand that non-Messianic Judaism, after the New Testament was written, continued down the path of rejecting Messiah, as, uh, Jesus as Messiah, and certainly rejecting him as divine, right? God walking among us. And therefore, when the time came to put in, plug in all those little vowels, uh, according to uh, what they understood the Bible to be teaching, of course, they're going to downplay the divinity of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Obviously, they're also going to outright reject the New Testament writings, right? We're not going to have the Masoretic um, families trying to oversee any Hebrew reproduction into of the um, New Testament. Indeed, at this point in time, Rabbinic Judaism is going to reject any of the New Testament writings at some point and simply um, gather all of the Hebrew resources and and codify the Tanakh and make it a, um, a, a an authoritative um, 
body of work that they are going to accept and teach and rally around. And that's the body of literature that they're going to call their Bible. So rabbinic Judaism has a Bible called the Tanakh that is, to Christians, the Old Testament. However, instead of God utilizing Hebrew to further the gospel message of his son and his kingdom on planet Earth, God did something rather unique. He instead decided to start utilizing a different language, which bypassed the Masoretic tradition and went into the Greek. Which means the Masoretes at that point in time had no control over the traditions of how the Tanakh was really being viewed by the um, New Testament Christians. You know, their Greek versions of the Bible, which we're going to look at here in a moment, known as the Septuagint. They also had no control over the subsequent Greek um, letters and, trans- and manuscripts that were being produced by the Christian communities because they had made a break from the Christians. The synagogue and the church were split at this point in time, sometime within the you know second, third, fourth, fifth centuries, etc. And so what we begin to realize is that the New Testament Christians were looking at their Tanakh and realizing that, hmm, there are some places here that the Masoretes said that this Messiah was fully human, that they are really possibly trying to hide the fact that he all along was going to be divine as well, or that he has been divine. We just didn't know it until um, it was revealed to us fully. So look at Psalm 110, verse 5. I'm sorry, did I jump forward too far? Yeah, give me a second. Let me go backwards. Look at Psalm 110, verse 1. Look at just some of the Hebrew um, highlights here. Let me, let's see. Let's zoom in on this part the strong's number and the um hebrew word um we've got um le david mizmor psalm of david and then we have neum yahweh says the lord right the word of the lord or says the lord the lord said and then these next two words um i'm sorry let's go like that um says the, the word of says the lord unto this second Lord. The Strong's number for Ladoni, not the L part, not that part. That's the conjunction unto, said the Lord, said Yahweh unto, L, to or unto. I'm not focused on that. The part I want you to f- make your eyes focus on is this word Adoni. Uh, Strong's number 113, as you can see on your screen right there. S- sorry about that. Right there. So Strong's has dedicated his numbering system for Adoni as 113. And the reason I want you to see that is because when we compare this to verse 5 in the same kind of um, numbering system, in verse 5, we have the Lord is at your right hand, and the first two word, the first word in, the, in verse 5 is Adonai, pronounced Adonai, because of the different vowel markings underneath the little consonantal letters, and pronounced Adonai because the Masoretic verbal tradition says it's Adonai, even without the vowel markings, right? You've got to trust what they're saying. Well, you don't have to, but most people do. At least the biblical Unitarian does. And so when we get to verse 5, it says Adonai. But notice what Strong's does. He marks it as 136 instead of 113. So what's the significance of these two different Strong's numbers? All right, well, let's look at these for a second. 
First of all, if you click on the words themselves, going to those tools, let me zoom back out. If I were to click on the um, La Doni, the Psalm 113, I'll go ahead and do it for you and show you what happens. It brings up in this particular tool the root word for, Ad, for Adoni, which is Adon. Do you see that? Strong's number 113 root word is Adon. That's for Adoni, 113. But if I click on Strong's number 136 and look at the root word, it's Strong's number 136 Adonai. But if I scroll a little bit further down to the tool, then we can see right here that it is an emphatic form of, you ready for it? Adon. A same root word as Adon Strong's number 113. In fact, if I click on it, I land back at 113 again. Adon, A-D-O-N. So let's run with that for a second. Let me go backwards to what that part. Let's run with that for a second. Let's look at this root word, Adon. So the root of both Adoni as well as Adonai, in other words, Strong's 113 and Strong 136, respectively, the root word is this strong, is 113. They both both 113 and 136 both go back to 113 which is adon and in the englishman's concordance i'll show you two different concordances the englishman's concordance shows in this tool as uh all the different places that this uh, word shows up uh it's sorry i didn't scroll so fast there it's quite ubiquitous shows up 325 occurrences in the old testament tanakh uh eight occurrences of adon itself and then we have um if you can see on the right side of the screen here um we have uh, three occurrences of Adonai, uh, 37 of Adonah, uh, Adonaiq, Adonai, Adonai, Adon, Adoncha, Adonchem, Adoneha. So you're getting the idea is that the root word itself gives rise to a bunch of other words. Likewise, when we look at um, the root word Adon in the Strong's Concordance, which is going to give us our lexiconic tool as well, definition BDB, then if I scroll down, we can see that the word is just a generic word for lord and in this case it's just the lowercase l-o-r-d because without context we don't know is it a divine lord is it a human lord the root word is simply the word lord and so um it can be translated as a husband it can be used in, in the capital l lowercase o-r-d sense or simply all lowercase l-o-r-d as in master or owner the bdb as i mentioned earlier is going to um give us some more information about this usage uh that it carries over into adoni versus adonai depending on context so you get the idea you can look these details up on your own i don't want to spend too much time on that just kind of alerting you to the fact now when we compare these two concordances the everyman's or the englishman's versus the strong's using the strong's number 136 remember strong realized that there were two words that had the same root but just like the masoretic tradition that's supplied by the vowel markings of adoni versus adonai strong's decided to give two different numbers to those two different hebrew words Adoni has been given the number 113, and Adonai has been given the number 136, even though their root is the same, 113. And so when we look at number 136 in Strong's numbering system, we can see 
uh, that this shows up um, right here, 448 occurrences. Uh, and then we're looking over at the um, right-hand side here, we can see the different um, breakdowns. You know, for Adon, it's two times. For Adonai, it's 419. For Adonai, it's one. There's Adonaiq, Adonenu, Adoni, Badonai, Hadadon, Ladonenu, Ladonai, etc., etc. So we have the different... Um, <clears throat> case forms or whatnot. Uh, I know Hebrew doesn't technically have cases like that, but the different uh, forms in which this word can show up. So what's the point that we're, we're establishing so far without making you confused? The point I'm simply trying to establish is that there's one root word, Adon, from which the Masoretic scribal families, when they wrote down what the psalmist wrote, right, Neum Yahweh Ladon, they had to choose. Is it Ladoni or is it Ladonai? And according to their understanding of the tradition of a human lord, it's Ladoni. And they preserved that choice after the New Testament was already written, after the incarnation of Yeshua was revealed to his followers, after the incarnation revealed the triunity of God in the clearest way possible. The scribal families of the Masoretes cemented their choice of a human Messiah into the text by adding vowel points that that corresponded to Ladoni, which according to Biblical Unitarian is proof positive that this is a human messiah. Let's keep going in our explanation. Um, Strong's number 136 in the Strong's Concordance for Adonai is translated Adonai or sometimes it's pronounced Adonoi. Uh, if you ever meet an Orthodox Jew, um, instead of saying Adonai, uh, sometimes you'll hear them say Adonoi. Almost sounds like Adonoi in O-Y instead of N-A-I or something to that effect. But notice the translations. It's, it's still an emphatic form of Adon. Oops. It's still an emphatic form of Adon. There we, I'm trying. There we go. Um, but the definition now is most often Lord. An emphatic form of Adon, the Lord used as a proper name of God only. But it is my Lord. Or some lexicons will show you that it's actually plural. My Lord's. Literally. Adoni or Adonai is, can be seen as a plural. Uh, my Lord's. So... Um, there are quite a number of, um, well, I shouldn't say quite a number. Sorry about that. There are enough usage of, usages of this word in the Old Testament to help us understand that this is identifying God the Father or God the Divine Being as over against any human. In fact, most dictionaries and lexicons as well as a biblical unitarian and trinitarians are going to recognize that adonai itself is a word that is reserved for uh god it's designated god so you shouldn't find any places in your bible where adonai is referring to a human unless and i'm trying not to tip my hand too far unless we're talking about messiah who is human and divine we could we could technically say there's a point where it shows it all right, but let's keep looking at, um, oops, didn't mean to go too far there. Um, let's keep looking at our uh, explanation and, 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 um, and refutation or answer to Biblical Unitarian. Now, remember, let me go back to their explanation. They say that the Bible in Psalm 110 actually gives the Messiah the title that never 
describes God, and the, the this word is Adoni. Let me just show you this real quick. We've looked at this in the past. We'll keep looking at it in the future. We have the two words side by side. If you can, with your eyes, visually remove the little red circled vowel marking, the on the right side, it's Kamat, the one that looks like a letter T, capital T. And on the left side, it looks like a period or a dot. It's called Chirik. If you can, with your eyes, remove that, then you can get a sense of the understanding that the same word must, by tradition or context, be pronounced either as Adoni or Adonai. On the right side, it's Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I, pronounced as Adon plus the word I, like your eyeball I. Adonai is a title reserved exclusively for God. Compare this to the left side of your screen is Adoni, spelled as A-D-O-N-A-I with a lowercase a, pronounced as Adon plus double E. Adoni nearly always refers to human superior. I say nearly always because Biblical Unitarian says that it always does refer to humans, but we're going to find out here in a moment as I begin to tip my hand some more towards my explanation, that even though they say that this title never describes God, I'm about to show you where it actually does describe God quite a number of times. The word Adon, the root word Adon, or even um, uh, Adon something, right? Adon plus another um, suffix. So let's begin to look at that real quick. When I turn to the Strong's number 138, and you can see that these numbers are all somewhat close related. There's 113, and then there's there was, um, what did we look at earlier? There was 136, and then two numbers over, there's Adonayahu. Adonayahu. Or your Bible is going to probably show it as Adonijah. Adonijah, right? As in, let me see if I can find it. Where's my other reference? Um, okay, I can't find it off the top of my head. I have it somewhere, the, uh, just a different um, rendering. Bible Hub, Bible Hub, Bible Hub. Uh, there we go. Blue Letter Bible. Okay, so Adonijah. Here we go. A-D-O-N-I-J-A-H. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Adonijah is composed of two words. Adoni plus ya. Adonia. Adonia, or in the Hebrew, we'd say Adoniyahu. So, question, who is the, who are these people in the Bible? Well, shows up a few times when we go back, let me go back over to that other resource for a second. This word Adonijah, or Adoniyahu, shows up 26 times in 26 verses using the NASB version of the Bible. And most of them are in the records of the kings, like Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings. If you can see, I'm scrolling somewhat quickly down, but you can see just with your eyes glancing that most of the references are showing up. And they refer to um, a, a certain person in these particular um, historical accounts of the Bible. So here's the point. Biblical Unitarian wants me to believe that Adoni never refers to God. It always refers to human. Isn't that what they just said? The Bible in Psalm 110 actually gives the Messiah the title that never, and they even have the word never describes God in italics. Let me just highlight it for you so you can see. Never describes God. The word is Adoni. 
in case you're not not understanding which Hebrew word they're referring to, is it Adonai or Adonai? The word that never describes God according to the Biblical Unitarian, and even kind of um, emphasized in their explanation by their um, it, italics is this word Adonai. Never describes God, but let's fact check that. Is that accurate? Now I don't know if they purposely ignored this or if it just if it just escaped their research. But look at this. Adoniyahu or Adonijah is a composite name made up of two words, Adoni plus Yah, and it's my Lord is Yahweh. It's the name of several Israelites, according to this Strong's Concordance number 138. The proper name, it's masculine, pronounced Adoniyah, or Adonijah is probably how you say it in English. And again, the definition is right here, my Lord is Yahweh, the name of several Israelites. So, question, is this name referring to God? Well, no, in the sense that this is not God's name. Um, another, in the sense that this is not God being referred to, it's talking about a human. But watch this. The name of the human is one of God's names, or composite of two of God's names. Adon, the root word, 113, um, rolled up into Adoni and Yah. Adoni plus Yah. So the root words are Adon and Yah, like we see on my screen right now, right here. So it's from 113 Adon plus Yah, which is uh, Strong's number 3050. And the definition is my Lord is Yahweh. So it's the name of several Israelites, as I keep mentioning. But what's the point? Why am I bringing this up? What's the relevance to our discussion? Here it is. And I'll, I'll begin to wind down on my ex explanation here. The name that's given here, just like Jeremiah's name, just like Isaiah's name, just like um, Nehemiah's name, just like Daniel's name, just like the name Israel, the names of the humans that I'm describing, or just like Matthew's name, the names of these humans, as is represented by the Hebrew, is actually the name of God inserted into the name of the human. So Isaiah's name is Yeshayahu. You can hear God's name inside of Isaiah's name. Is it referring to Isaiah? Yes, it's the human Isaiah, but the name that Isaiah is given is God's name. It's not Isaiah's name on top of Isaiah's name. Likewise with Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu. You can hear Jeremiah, it's God's name referenced inside of Jeremiah's name. The human is Jeremiah, but the name, make no mistake, is God's name. Yah is not Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah or Jeremiah's name. The Yah on the English part, or Yah in the Hebrew version. Yahu or Yah or Yahu or Yah. It's not Isaiah's name. It's not the human's name when we say the Yahu part or the Yah part or Yah in English. Everyone knows it's God's name, or Daniel, the L part, or Israel, the, or Ezekiel, the L part of the suffix part, Daniel, uh, um, uh, Israel, or um, Yehezkael, right? The L part at the end is not the name of the human. 
No one's going to argue that that's the human's name, although the full composite, the, the, the two parts, when you put them back together, that's the human's name, right? Isaiah is the human. Jeremiah is the human. Daniel is the human. I, you know, Ezekiel is the human being. But the L part in their name points to who? You guys know the answer. It points heavenward. It points to God. The same thing is true with this person's name. Adoniyahu is a composite of two of God's names. What are they? Not just Adon. It's Adoniyahu. My Lord is Yahweh. Not just Lord is Yahweh. But what do we see that Adoni means? as well as Adonai, it means my Lord, or as the Greek, right, Tokurios Mu, the Lord of me. My Lord. It's got that uh, bit of uh, genitive um, possessive going on. It's the Lord of me, or my Lord. Adoni Yahoo, not Adon Yahoo. Not, it's, his name isn't Adonja, it's Adonijah. Adoniyah. What's the point I'm trying to make? Adoniyahu. The point is, Biblical Unitarian is trying to tell me that Adoni, this first part that you can see on your screen right now, Adoni doesn't show up referring to God. But I think they're wrong. I'm certain they're wrong. Somebody tell me I'm missing it here. Adoni is, my Lord is, and just so there's no mistake, my Lord is Yahweh. Not my Lord is the human. You get it? So Yahweh is my Lord, or my Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh is Adoni, or Adoni is Yahweh, is what his name means. My Lord is Yahweh. Adoni is Yahweh. Or we can swap it around. It makes make the sense. It's still the same. Yahweh is Adoni, or Yahweh is my Lord. In the Hebrew, we can see it's right there. Adoni. And the vowel points are not Adonaiyah, as in the Kamat's uh, little um, letter, look, uh, capital letter T under the noon. Instead, the vowel marking is like the left side. Adoniyah. Who or Adoniyah, right? Adoni is my Lord. So we'll we'll draw our study to a close here. So here's our again. We're seeing how, and I'm drawing. I'm closing with this. We're seeing how that over and over, biblical Unitarian's explanation about Adoni only, and, I, and I'm just I'm I'm I keep highlighting this because they they they're the ones who put the little bold there or the 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 italics. This title never describes God. The word is Adoni. No, I'm sorry. You, you're either not aware of the Adoniyahu, which is in the Bible. Either you, you missed the Hebrew or in your haste to, to make an anti-Trinitarian argument, you skipped over this. Or your eyes have been blinded to the truth to the truth of the Incarnation, and therefore you're blinded to the truth of the reality of the mystery of God. In other words, you're viewing the Bible through the lens of Rabbinic Judaism, which is also blinded to who the true Jesus is, the divine Messiah. When he walked and talked to the earth, when he walked the earth and talked with his disciples, he was seen as a human being. Yes, he's fully human, he's truly human. 
But every now and then, for those who had eyes that and, and a heart that was searching for God and was willing to set aside their own preconceived notions of who they thought God was and who they thought the Messiah should be, those who were open to putting aside, putting aside their own preconceived notions and willing to accept the words of Jesus as the words of very God himself and the, the actions of Jesus as the actions of very God, those people had the grace to see that Jesus was the Word made flesh, that Jesus was the divine second person of the Trinity who was both with God in the beginning and was God, according to John's Gospel. They had the eyes of faith open so that when Jesus spoke the words of God his Father, he was also speaking the words of of God in human form. He was, like uh, Thomas said, my Lord and my God, which in the Greek is even more emphatic, the Lord of me and the God of me. So, Biblical Unitarian has decided to purposely re reject the incarnation and reject the revelation of God to humans as God incarnate. And so, thus, they foster the blindness, they perpetuate the blindness of the Old Testament um, people who are interacting with the uh, scriptures in the Tanakh, like Rabbinic Judaism does today. If you have a conversation with a Rabbinic Jew about the Old Testament, yeah, they know a lot of details, They may, and they certainly might even know a lot more than you do as a Hebrew reader, right? They can read the Hebrew, you can't. And so you're probably thinking, man, they, they know more their Bible more than me. Ah, but wait a minute, but if you're a Christian, you'd be surprised how much more of the Bible that you know than them. Why? Because they have blindness over their eyes. Their eyes are blinded. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Their eyes have been blinded to the Messiah, and until that veil over their eyes is lifted by the Messiah himself, they're going to continue to look through the scriptures with a veil, and they won't see Messiah. He's hidden from them. And so thus, biblical Unitarian, and I'm drawing my study to a close, they have decided to take the rabbinic uh, stance on this Adoni. And so, of course, now I'm not surprised that they say that this title never describes God, but nope, sorry, Adoni Yahu or Adoni Yah. This is God, the Lord. In fact, the word Lord there, which is rendered as a capital L in this uh, Strong's Concordance tool, that's not referring to the human Messiah. Otherwise, we have a problem. If the Lord here is a human being, how could they say that this Lord is Yahweh? The Lord is Yahweh? Are they saying that this Lord is a human? This human being is Yahweh? Perish that thought, right? Blasphemy. No, that doesn't work. God is not merely just a human. What we're saying, seeing here, unless we're talking about Jesus, then it's not blasphemy. But what we're seeing here is that this individual, this Adonai, this uh, this human being known as Adonai, he has simply been given the name that in two places is referring to the divine God, Adonai and Yah. So, that'll do it for this version. Um, next week, we'll continue going down this rabbit hole. We'll begin to continue to look at the uh, beginning, begin to continue to look. I always love that phrase, right? That just doesn't sound, make any sense at all. Um, Adon and Adonai are related to Strong's number 113 and 136. And we'll also begin to see how that Yahweh, this proper name for God, can sometimes be rendered as L in the Bible. And we already know this, but um, the point being is that when we're talking about the names of God and the identify the, the, the identifying nature of the name, 
the context is going to help us understand that the Old Testament is going to keep point us in the direction as I'm kind of showing you kind of previews of what, where we're going um, as I'm trying to not drag this out and out but Biblical Unitarian wanted to get technical so I'm going technical on them right in my explanation and answer to them I'm giving technicalities but we're going to begin to see that as the as the biblical writers begin to write using the names of God uh, jumping in and out of different names like Yah and Adonai and Adoni and El, like you see on your screen here, uh, God and Lord and things. Eventually, we're going to find out and we're going to get to the point that um, Micah is going to use this word Adonai or Zechariah. Let's see, is it Zechariah or is it Micah? I, th I think it's Zechariah first. But we're going to get to the point that. Um, before we jump into the New Testament explanation, we're going to get to the point where we're going to see that um, uh, the Lord that is spoken of in the Old Testament is the Lord God, but the description helps us know that we're talking about the Lord incarnate. So I don't want to tip my hand too far, but you can see on the screen is that we're going to look at Zechariah 4, 4.14 eventually. But um, for now, uh, we've uh, established the fact that, uh, let me just stop, park at it, and we'll leave off with that. We've established the fact that, there we go, we've established the fact that um, this word Adoni does in fact refer to Yahweh God in several places. Yes, it's a human being, it's his name, but the name is referring to the God of heaven and not a human being here on earth. And that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I am humbled to know that I can be utilized by the Holy Spirit in this fashion to convey these truths to others who are willing to listen. Not that they are my truths. They, they, these are not truths that I have established. They are not Ariel's insights. Well, in some fashion, they are my insights, but they are your truths, and you've just revealed them to me, and so I'm just conveying what I believe you are showing me to those who are following along with these videos and this podcast, these uh, uh, audio files. So, Lord, I thank you for the um, opportunity to be utilized by your Spirit. Help me to remain usable, keep my vessel clean and usable, and um, in a place where I can see and discover truth for myself so that I can teach it to others others uh, who are willing to listen. Lord, I don't have all the answers. That's the whole point. And so I rely on others as well. As a Trinitarian believer, I do appreciate what the non-Trinitarians bring to the discussion as far as um, salvation, as far as sanctification, as far as the authority of scriptures, as far as the unity of the saints and fellowship and things like that. I do count many biblical Unitarians as my brothers and sisters to the degree that they are real, genuine believers. But when we're talking about matters of ontology and understanding God's nature, neither one of us has a corner market, corner on the market of truth because none of us fully understands God. So we were rely on you and thank you for your patience with us as both Trinitarians and non-Trinitarians work through these issues together. Thank you for the other material, the um, eschatology study and the challenges that it presents. Continue to carry us along as students and teachers um, working through these issues together and being patient with one another as we investigate the biblical text so that we can uncover truth. Be go with us this week. Um, keep us safe. Uh, keep us um, uh, protected and um, keep us keep providing for us because we rely on you as our source and our provision and we'll be careful to give the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen.